listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com. In the name of God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Church, you can have a seat. Good morning, Res. Come on now, people. I can tell, I got a pulse on you guys. I can tell when things are a little sluggish and everybody's still struggling to wake up. I need you guys to turn it on this morning because we've got the passage of like all passages. Romans, we've been tracking Paul in Romans and it's, it, is, it has come to us at the, kind of the top of this mountain in Romans chapter eight, but I get ahead of myself. Last week, Michelle and I, we had the wonderful gift and pleasure of being with um, our, one of our bishops in our diocese as a church in South Carolina, and so we were uh, invited to come and preach. He's on sabbatical, so we're kind of helping out there. But it was, I, I promise, it was so much more of a gift to us than anyone else. We got to go without kids. Hallelujah. Amen. We love them, but it's so good to get away um, and worship with St. Peter's uh, out there in South Carolina. Um, Eric, was, I heard, did a great job of listening to the sermon. I'm like, man, it's so nice. Kind of just like brag on our church a little bit. It's so nice to be able to, as the rector, go away and have such a deep bench of preaching that this whole church doesn't have to rest on like me or my personality or my preaching, but we've got this, this wealth of people who can exposit God's word for us. Amen? It's a, that is a gift, people. Not every church has that. God has like lavished us with wealth, and I'm so grateful for that. So thank you, Eric, for that. Well, um, even in South Carolina, I was still preaching through Romans. I, didn't, I was like, I don't care what you guys are doing. We're going through Romans back home, so you're going to get Romans this morning. Uh, so I've been still tracking with you guys. And this morning in chapter 8, Paul writes about being led by the Spirit as those divinely adopted of God. Listen to this in verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption when we cry, Abba, Father. This is, this is rich. Just on face value, this is beautiful and wonderful. But what's the one story that I'm telling you guys all through Romans we see woven throughout the narrative? What's that, that Old Testament biblical story that's pretty popular? It's a pretty big deal. What's that story? Anybody know? I've said it like three times. It starts with an E, ends with Exodus. There it is. Good job. You guys paying attention. That's good. This, this is the key to understand that these aren't just like sentimental words that Paul's issuing to us. Like, oh, that's sweet. You're adopted. You've been filled with the Spirit. You're led by the Spirit, not into slavery, but into adoption. Oh, that's how sweet. It is nice. But when you overlay the Exodus story and you see that Paul's been weaving this throughout his, his, his writing of this letter, you see that there's, there's actually far more depth in this than at first glance. That image of being led by the Spirit being divinely adopted as God's children, this is an image borrowed from Exodus chapter 13 and 14. Do you know how the people of God were led once they were brought out of slavery? How were they led? Where did they know where to go? Who led them? The Spirit of God. How? What did it look like? Pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. Led by, actually led by the Spirit. And these, these people, God's people, being led by the Spirit they weren't led back into Egypt, even though they, they complained and groaned and said, why, why did you bring us out here, Moses, to die? There were plenty of graves back in Egypt. The Spirit led them away from slavery into freedom as God's children. Do you see how that story plays in the background of what Paul's saying here in Romans? We, you actually cannot understand Romans unless you understand what's happening in the Exodus. 
The Spirit doesn't lead us into a back, in, back into a spirit of fear, but into a spirit of adoption. Now check this out, folks. If this is true, and Paul's writing to us, he's saying, church, you, sitting here this morning, you have received the spirit of adoption. You're being led by the Spirit as God's people. How? If you're baptized, you're joined with Christ's death and his resurrection. Yeah, right? We know that. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the son of God. And so if you join in his life, then you inherit his sonship, his daughtership as a child of God, filled and led by the Spirit. Do you all see that? This isn't sentimental. This is like actual concrete Christian belief that we live in practice. This same Spirit that led the people of Israel, that fills us and leads us, is the same Spirit that, that tabernacled with Israel in the wilderness. You remember that? It's the same spirit. God's assuring presence. Not that you had to like dream him up in your head, but that you could actually see where God's presence was among his people. It was also their assurance that, that God wasn't just some God for other people, but that this was their God, their father. And so to cry out to their father, Abba, Father, as those who have received the spirit of adoption in Jesus the Son, in the God and the Spirit who has dwelt among us, who's tabernacled among us, we cry out, Abba, Father. He's our God. Y'all tracking with me? This is dense. I know Paul's like working with a lot right here, but we're tracking, right? So if the Spirit dwells in us, we're adopted children of God, and we're also heirs with Jesus. Heirs of what? Well, sonship. We know that we're children of God, right? Is that it? Think about this. We're talking about the incarnate Messiah. What does he deserve? What, what does he inherit as the one who's trampled over sin and death, resurrected, ascended to the right hand of God the Father? What, do, what is his? Glory. Like it would blow our mind kind of glory, right? I, well, maybe we should ask, what is not his? See what I'm saying? So here Paul is saying, you are heirs. This is what you inherit. The spirit of adoption makes us co-heirs with Christ, if we can wrap our heads around that, the Messiah. Heirs with the one who has defeated Seth, sin and death, was raised from the dead. We've already heard this in Romans um, earlier in chapter one, but we, it pops up again here in verse 19, he takes this further, and I'll, I'll explain more. It says in this, in verse, verse 19, for the creation waits in eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. As heirs of God, as, as, as children of God, as heirs, co-heirs with Christ, all of creation is his, right? And his resurrection right behind him is all of creation that he is redeeming actively. That creation waits in eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. Verse 20 says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. There it is again. What does this have to do with us, the children of God? We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. Do you all see there's this connection between the redemption of all of creation and children of God. Something's going on here in what Paul's writing. 
He's been working with us in terms of understanding who we are as children of God, as, as people who have been unified with Christ. We've been redeemed. We understand that part. But what in the world does creation have to do with us being children of God? Why would the world be waiting for us to be revealed? Good question, right? Fantastic question, Sean. I was just thinking that. Well, maybe, let's just, let's be fair. Maybe Paul is like, it's Earth Day, you know? And he just kind of took a little bit of a detour in his letter. Children of God, and then this whole creation tree-hugging business popped out of nowhere. Maybe it's Earth Day. Maybe this is like an afterthought, and Paul's like, well, oh, and, and creation's a part of this somewhere, so just stick it here. Not at all. Couldn't be further from the truth, actually. Kaylin, I love that you're speaking to me, girl. I, church... I need that kind of feedback. It's good. How did this all of a sudden, how did the redemption of all things all of a sudden involve creation? Or hasn't it all along? Hasn't it all along? When I said that Paul's revisiting something the way he started in chapter one, this letter, he said that actually all of creation reveals the glory of God. One of my favorite poems is by Gerard Manley Hopkins. Uh, it's called uh, God's Grandeur. You may have heard it. And he says in his opening sentence, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. And it groans, Paul says, waiting for redemption. It's groaning, waiting for the children of God to be revealed that it too would find freedom and redemption. What a wide scope of salvation. We've heard salvation growing up, right? Maybe you've been a Christian forever and you think, when someone says salvation, we think me personally, like a, a human being, right? Turn your life over to Jesus and follow him and that's certainly part of it. But who would have thought that salvation had this kind of scope that involved all of creation, material things, that it mattered to God? This is what Paul, if we could see it, has actually been weaving since chapter one. He has this in view for himself that all of creation is teeming with anticipation for its Messiah. To reveal the children of God that they would then steward creation and release it from captivity, from futility, from oppression. If the entire created world reveals the glory of God, think about this and come at it from a different angle because I know I've got some skeptics maybe. If the entire created world reveals the glory of God, how much more than, what does it look like when it's under the dominion of a sinful humanity? How much more than does it cry out to be redeemed, set free? How much does a creation that is charged with the grandeur of God, what does it look like then if it's mismanaged and abused and exploited by sinful people who are just reaping it for its resources. Hopkins, that poem that I read earlier, it continues actually along this line that says, he calls the earth crushed under the generations who have seared with trade, bleared, smeared God's creation with toil. What a beautiful set of words to imagine that. Is this getting too environmentalist for you people? Is this like, am I following the text? Have y'all read what Paul said? Is this like, you know, maybe this is a little too environmentalist? It, no, it's not, right? I got like a lot, of, a lot of green folks in here. It's good. Isn't, isn't creation just going to go away in the end? 
It's all got to burn to hell in a handbasket, right? Or whatever you guys say, whatever it said. Isn't that what the end is for salvation? Like we, we get wings and we go off into heaven and we say goodbye to our bodies and the earth, I mean, whatever, good luck. But there's like another end for us. Isn't that what's in view for us? Why would God create all this in the first place of only to dispose of it in the end? Here's, here's something a little more personal. Why would he call you and commission you as humanity to tend to his garden if it didn't matter so much? Remember that in Genesis? You had one job, people, you know? Why would he call us to tend to his garden? Why would God call out a fleshly people, a race, to be his own people? Like an embodied people with skin and bones, like an actual created people. Why would he call them out to be his people if, if creation didn't matter to him? Why would he send actual prophets, actual kings, judges? Why would the word, the word of God, become incarnate if matter didn't matter to him? Why would this word come and speak audibly using sound waves and announce the kingdom of God? Using the material world so that we could comprehend what God's up to in the world? Why would he go through all that trouble if all of this was just going to go away in the end? Why would he heal people? Think about that. Why would he raise dead people if it was all just going to go away in the end? Why would our Lord suffer in the flesh upon the cross if the flesh didn't matter? Even more so, why would he be resurrected, not just in spirit, but in flesh and in body? Why? If it all didn't matter to him. Now this is, you're gonna, you're gonna like um, flip out on this one. If, I hope you've had your coffee. Why would this flesh that's been resurrected then ascend into the Holy Trinity, the presence of God, the Father, and the Spirit as a human being in flesh and remain as a human being? There is flesh in the Holy Trinity, y'all. That's crazy. Why would that be the case for eternity now if creation didn't matter, if the body didn't matter, if matter didn't matter? There's, whole, there's flesh in the Holy Trinity. That just blows my mind. All throughout, what I'm trying to say here, folks, is all throughout the biblical story, all throughout the Christian belief of what God is up to in the world is necessarily involving creation and matter and the land, the earth, people. Stuff matters to God. And it's not something I'm just saying, well, this is, we're, this is just kind of like an environmentally friendly church or something. Not at all. No, I mean... Who cares about like joining in with some sort of cause? This is like necessarily what's it, what it means to be a Christian, to participate with God's redemption of all of creation. That's what's first and foremost for us. And we see this even in the writing of Paul. This isn't gonna be done away with, but it's actually going to be redeemed. That's part of the plan. All of it is being caught up in God's deliverance. You guys following? Do you believe me? You see this in Paul's writing. So Paul argues. <laughs> That we too share as Christ, not, not only as children of God, but also as heirs in his death, in his resurrection, in this new life, but we're also heirs in this project to redeem all of creation. Verse 22, it says, the creation is groaning in labor pains until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves. When you're here worshiping and you think, Lord, have mercy on me. I got it tough right now. The rocks cry out with you. Lord, have mercy on me. The all of creation groans in anticipation for its Messiah. 
and we ourselves join in on that, right? But, but there's a difference. You have received the first fruits, Paul says, of the Spirit. Though you groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. This is an interesting little development. The first fruits of the Spirit given to us. Okay, now let's back up, track with me. We've been led by the Spirit. We've been given the Spirit of God in our baptism. And like Israel, we are being led by the Spirit as adopted children of God, right? Remember who we are as human beings. Originally created as image bearers, called to steward a garden according to the good purposes of God, right? Now given the first fruits of the Spirit, that we would continue to participate and cooperate with the Messiah's prolonged work. It's still going on. To tend to the garden. To release it from captivity. It groans in anticipation waiting for this kind of release, this kind of freedom. I hope what I'm helping us see here is that our view of salvation isn't just some private, hidden, kind of personal thing alone, but actually concerns everything. There's not a more public thing to talk about than salvation, actually, because it concerns everything. Yes, our bodies will be redeemed. Yes, we receive the forgiveness of sins, but the repercussions of that upon the earth are incredible. Paul's saying that all of creation waits for us to be revealed, the children of God to be revealed and set free. Why? Because when we're set free, our lives tend to the garden quite differently, don't they? Who would have thought that repentance didn't mean just stopping looking at porn or something, but actually looked at how am I mismanaging and exploiting the resources of the earth? Who would have thought that repentance doesn't just mean, well, we're like damaging and doing violence to these people. Yes, certainly repent, stop. But also look at the damage and the hurt that you're doing to God's beautiful creation. It's all encompassing. Don't just write me off as some environmentalist. I'm just showing you what Paul's writing here. And this has been woven throughout the scriptures. Friends, the Christian hope isn't some privatized internal spiritual kind of reality alone. It's certainly that. But all of creation, stuff, it matters to God. You have stumbled into a church this morning that really cares about stuff, matter. We're going to come to the table and feed you stuff borderline irreverent because of what it is. We're going to feed you the body and blood of Jesus. We wear this stuff, these robes, to kind of shake us modern Christians out of thinking that what we're dealing with is just something internal and private and hidden. No. We want you to see the glory of God. We want you to see his heavenly choir that actually surrounds us even now worshiping him and praising him forever and ever. We want you to understand that you too join in on that choir and your bodies matter. What you do with your body as you bow and mark yourself with the cross, it all matters. We're all being caught up in this motion of salvation led by the Messiah. So why don't we follow? Why don't we know, maybe some of us already know this, why don't we get on board with this? What's so hard about this for us? Perhaps because we don't really believe that God's version of the good life is really that much better than ours, maybe. Or maybe because our plan is really, here's my plan for life. 10-year, 20-year goal to avoid suffering, um, make some money maybe, and I'm just gonna, I'm gonna do my best to be a good person. 
That's the good life for me. But check this out. Even if you avoided all pain, you still die, which is like basically the culmination of all pain, right? That's a certain thing. Being a, being a nice person doesn't actually deal with the, the horror that is within us that is sin. It doesn't fix that. You can be nice on the outside, but you're faking it, and you won't make it because there's something deeply broken within us. And being a good person, it doesn't really help you when you're dead. It doesn't do something for you like raise you from the dead. It doesn't give you a future being a good person now. It's not quite enough. Those can't be, those are being nice, being good. You know I'm not knocking that. I'm saying that's, that's wonderful. But it's actually not going to suffice for salvation. Amen? It doesn't work. Only Jesus is truly good. We know this. He didn't avoid suffering at all, did he? No, actually, he probably could have. But he took suffering head on. He took every last punch that suffering had to offer for our sake. And though he was perfectly nice and good and actually without sin, led a perfect life, he took the death that confronts us all, he took it himself. And only the power of God raised him from the dead. This is the Christian story. This is what we believe when we say we're Christians. We subscribe to this. We wrap our lives around this. We put our trust in that story because it's true. Now, here's the incredible news. In all of this story of God's redemption through Christ and all that he has taken within him and the suffering and the pain and even the conquering of sin and death and being risen from the dead, he took all of humanity with him. He never left it behind. He took all of humanity with him as he ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. Why? Because of what Paul's saying here, in order that all of humanity and all of creation would be reunited with its creator. This is the cosmic scope of what Paul is trying to describe to us. The Eastern church, they have, they have such a like, refreshing perspective on this. Westerners, I don't know, maybe we just have a hard time with this. But the Eastern church, they have an understanding of the liturgy. St. Maximus the Confessor talks about the liturgy, this, as, as a participation in the entire cosmic order, stars and planets turning in repentance to attend to the Messiah. Whoa, there's a lot involved there. We could use some of that. This action of liturgy, this thing that you've already been caught up with with your bodies, not just internally with your mind, your heart, this thing actually inaugurates and joins in on this thing that's already happening, which is all of creation coming to attend to the Messiah, the one who's going to deliver it. This is what we're caught up in. And we're not the only ones. This has been going on for a very, very long time and will continue to go on. This is the incredible news, church, that we do not live some disembodied Christian life without flesh, without matter, without creation. All of that is within view in our lives as Christians. Now I'd say that all of this doesn't mean that, let's say you're going through suffering now. It doesn't mean that uh, Paul is just brushing over this or I'm brushing over this saying your suffering doesn't matter right now. It's not being overlooked. Or maybe you're worried about something, something's plaguing you and burdening you. Your pain is not nothing. Your worry does matter to God. In fact, you should bring it up. You should pray and ask God for help. But more than that, your suffering and your pain, along with all of creation, is being joined with Christ's suffering. It's not without purpose. It's not without end. No, it's been absorbed and taken in by Christ's suffering himself. 
And what's so significant about this is this. If our suffering is joined with Christ's suffering, if our groaning and praying out for the Messiah, for the redemption of our bodies, for all of creation, joins with him who is in the flesh, seated at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for this purpose, it's not without purpose. Our groaning, our prayers are not without good purpose. They join in with his. They're actually effective. They're doing something. They're making it to the ear of the Father. Now this, this is what I think when Paul lands at the end of this and says, and so we have hope. This is the kind of concrete hope that we have. Not hope that's just fleeting, not hope that's just positive thinking, but hope that is concretely grounded in the person of Jesus, who brings not only our redemption, but the redemption of all creation with him. This is a future of God that our lives belong to, that you and I as as human beings, as children of God, our identity is more wrapped up in God's future than it is in the present, if you can believe that. That's where our hope is. That's who we are. And so even this morning, we come and receive the first fruits of this future that God has for us, this redemption of not only our bodies, but all of creation. This morning, we're offered the first fruits, not to just think about them fondly. You should, and reverently, for sure. It's a big deal but also to actually receive them in your hands and to consume them and thereby be consumed into the life of God. This morning, folks, this is no small thing. What we are kind of rehearsing, participating in, and this is certainly a reality, is what the consummation of all things in the end will actually look like and mean. Where heaven and earth have come together and interlock. Where the first fruits of the harvest of the end of the ages is feeding God's people. We're no longer, we're divided and separated and groaning for salvation, but that we've realized the redemption of our bodies and of all things. This is what we come to get a glimpse of at this altar this morning, if you can see it. This morning, Rez, it's in your name. You can't avoid it, resurrection. What a wonderful name. May we freshly remember that we are a resurrection people. Though we will die someday, our bodies will be resurrected. And same thing for all of creation who waits to be delivered, it's going to be recreated. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. God has determined that that would be so. May we remember that we are the heralds of that future of God, where all things are being redeemed. May we imagine audaciously this inheritance that we receive in Christ as children of God, led and filled by his spirit, actively hoping, actively praying, Suffering even because our future is so identified in our, our, our identity and our, our lives are so wrapped up in God's future that it may be hard to live in the present. You may be mocked for it. You may receive some friction for it. But that, surf, that suffering is totally worth it because we anticipate the glory of that's going to be revealed in God in the future and even now. This is what I mean. This is what I think it means for us to live as a resurrection people, to receive this inheritance of Jesus suffering even if it were, and working with God to bring about his kingdom as we pray that it would come on earth just as it is in heaven. Remember that? Would you take a moment for me as we quiet ourselves and invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us as a people, not just as individuals, but as a people, as a community. God, how can we tend to your future? How can we tend to the garden that you're bringing about now even in the redemption of our bodies and the redemption of all creation. Let's take a moment.
Anderson Mine.